Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we now turn to Luke chapter 10 to hear your word preached, we pray that you would illumine our hearts, open our eyes, and show us Christ. Lord, help us to understand this passage. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, we learned last week that Jesus is on that long and winding road to Jerusalem. Road that we're going to follow all the way to around chapter 19 of Luke. And along the way, he's teaching us many things. Last week, he taught us what it's like to join him on that road. It's a costly discipleship. Discipleship that cost us commitment. Well, this week, Jesus teaches us something else. He's, not, he's no longer just uh, teaching the disciples to follow him on that road, but there's more and more disciples he's gathering along that road. They're joining Jesus. They're taking up that cost of discipleship, that costly commitment, and as they do, Jesus is doing something interesting. He's sending them out. He's teaching them about missions. And that's very relevant for us, of course, as a mission work of our denomination, as those sent from, from our mother church, Covenant in Vandalia, to proclaim the gospel here in Dayton. Well, we need to know something about what it means to be sent by Jesus as we're on that road from through suffering to glory. And so we would do well to focus in on this short-term mission trip we see here in chapter 10, beginning in verse 1 that Jesus appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he was about to go. Well, why 72? I think we have to ask that question before we jump in. Why 72 disciples? I think many answers. This is actually, you see different answers from commentators, but I think two in particular stand out to us and serve to, to drive home the purpose of the text. First, We hear about 72 nations in Genesis chapter 10. 72 nations descended from Noah. At least if you look in the Greek version of the Old Testament, Greek translation that that Jesus' disciples would have been familiar with. So 72 nations. And that's very significant. It tells us that Jesus is sending out this number of disciples that that measures a number of fullness to bring back the nations from the domain of darkness that they've they they are under the sway of to to win back all the nations of the world from satan but seven, but 72 is also a multiple of 12 12 times 6 and you remember kind of deja vu, we saw a a very similar kind of sending back at the beginning of chapter 9, where Jesus sent out his 12 disciples. What's happening now? He's doing it again, but now it's expanding. Now we have the mission of God expanding to the nations in ever greater proportions. This is uh, just a sneak peek of what we're going to see in the book of Acts, volume 2 of Luke. as the 72 go 
to the nations under the power of darkness, Jesus has this message of a new kingdom. Verse 9, you are to heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. I want us to understand what this has to tell us about missions. We're going to look at two two basic points today that follow the flow of this passage. First, he sent them out. We're going to look at the mission, the mission itself, these instructions. Verses 1 through 16. But then verses 17 through 24, they returned. The report, the debriefing. So first, we're going to look at the mission and then the report. Well, what's it like to be on mission for Jesus? What's it like when these 72 go out into the towns on their way to Jerusalem? We could also ask, what's it going to be like when we go into the world, when we go to downtown Dayton, tell people about Jesus? Jesus gives us some vivid pictures. First, he says, you're going to be like laborers in a harvest. Verse 2, Jesus said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And these words, when we hear them, they're they're incredibly encouraging. What's the first image that pops into our, our heads? Shimmering fields as far as the eye can see of wheat ripe for picking. Rows of olive trees just filled with fruit ready to be plucked. That's the worldwide missions today. That's the state. As the kingdom of God breaks forth into the world, the world is like a field, a rich field ready for harvest. And yet, Jesus gives us unsettling words. The labors are few. Now think about this. The first thing that Jesus says to these disciples as they leave for this mission trip. The first thing that they hear is that they're entirely inadequate for the labors ahead of them. That they're going to go out to this field. 72 is simply not enough. Imagine you're standing on the edge of a cornfield. You see those cornfields all over in Ohio now and they're, they're, they're growing. And imagine you're standing in front. You've got your bucket The farmer says, you better get moving. You better start plucking stalks of corn because they're only ripe for another day or two, and that's it. The rest of it gets burned, fed to the pigs. Jesus says, that's what your mission is like. You're going out, but you're going to feel completely overwhelmed by the amount of harvest by the number of souls that are out there that need to hear this message. Jesus gives them a second picture of what it's like. What's it going to be like when you 72 go out there? Not only are you laborers in this overwhelming harvest, you are lambs surrounded by wolves. Verse 3, go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Well, wow. I have, 
been on several short-term mission trips, but I've never heard the team leader pump up the team with those kinds of words. You're going to go out like, like Bambi into the middle of a forest, trotting along, and there's wolves lurking. And they're very, very hungry. That's what the mission field is like. Now, who are these wolves? Jesus later calls them scorpions and snakes in our passage. These are not ordinary forces. They are the enemy. They're spiritual enemy. They are the demonic forces sent by Satan that have blinded the world to the truth of the gospel and which leads the world in a strange kind of opposition to the message of the gospel that goes out. And so when, when, we, when we meet someone who violently, strongly shuts the door to the gospel, we don't think of that person as the enemy. We think of them as one that is blinded by the enemy. The forces of Satan sent into the world. Wolves. So Jesus says, you're going to go into the mission field with a target on your back. Then you'll notice he gives them another strange instruction they wouldn't expect to hear for missionaries going out. He says, you're going to be like barefoot travelers. Verse 4, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, greet no one on the road. It's a lot of no's right in, the, right in the row. He's sending them out. Why is he limiting them? You know, we've already heard no money or no belongings when, when Jesus sent out the 12 at the beginning of chapter 9. Well, now, not even shoes. These guys are walking around thorn-infested uh, Judea, you know, Galilee, on their way down to Jerusalem. Be painful to walk. And then they show up on someone's doorstep, feet, barefoot, covered in mud. I'd like to tell you about the kingdom of God. Maybe that's the very point of it all. These missionaries, these disciples are a living picture of, of people dependent on God for everything. And to the people that open the door to them, they see this, they've got nothing on them, nothing but, but clothes and a message. And if, if they're going to believe that message... They have to accept something that the world sees as weakness. Barefoot travelers. Simple gospel message. There's more. They are laborers in the harvest. They are lambs surrounded by wolves. They are barefoot travelers. The opposite of the, the slick salesmen you see going door to door, s- selling their goods. Finally, they are ambassadors for Jesus. And I would, I would also note they're, they're going to be rejected ambassadors. So we see two very different responses to the same gospel message. Some are going to accept this message of the king. Verse 6. If a son of peace 
is there. Your peace will be upon him. Proclaim to him, the kingdom of God is upon you. And so we have this picture of the blessings of the Old Testament. Peace. Now resting on the home that accepts this message about the Messiah. But Jesus quickly takes us to another kind of response. Many rejecting this same message of the king. Verses 10 through 12. He even gives his disciples the strange ritual when they're rejected, when the door is shut in their face. He says, you know what? The town rejects you. You're going to shake the dust off your feet. Go into the center of the town so everyone can see it. What is this? I've already heard about this several weeks ago from Brad. It's kind of a prophetic judgment where right in the eyes of the whole town, it's saying, you have rejected the very message that can save you have nothing to do to you, with you. Uh, we are on our way to another city. And not only that, they say to this town, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now that's very interesting. To the people who accept the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is upon you. It rests on you. You are part of it. But to these people, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So near that you could reach out and touch it. It was at your very doorstep. All you had to do was say, yes, I believe. But that nearness has become a judgment because you shut the door in the face of the kingdom of God and you chose the kingdom of darkness instead. You see, Jesus says, you go out and as ambassadors, you're going to be accepted or rejected on my account. Right? Yeah. And here's the thing. This kind of rejection is actually going to be the norm. Verses 13 through 16, Jesus, right after he's shown these two kinds of responses, he launches into a mournful, mournful cry against several cities. Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. What are these cities? These are cities that Jesus has already been ministering to. These are cities that have seen his miracles, that have heard his preaching, and yet, what what is he saying? They've already rejected him. They've already chosen the kingdom of darkness. And so they will be cut down in in pride, just like we heard of in Isaiah chapter 14, right? You, You seek to be exalted, like, the, like those who built the Tower of Babel, you will be cut down. In fact, the rejection of Jesus leaves them facing judgment worse than Sodom, Tyre, Sidon. These are the most infamous cities of the Old Testament, and these cities are worse off because Jesus walked in them, talked in them. They rejected him. So he prepares his disciples to be rejected ambassadors as they bring this message to the kingdom. And isn't this what we find in our missions work today? All of this? Is, isn't Dayton like a harvest field? I mean, we, we ought to be captured by this vision. A field ripe for the plucking, filled with souls, ready to hear the gospel, and yet... 
So few labors as harvest time draws to a close. So few of us going to the world desperate for this gospel message. And aren't we like lambs surrounded by wolves as we do go out and and share the gospel? Uh, Sometimes you might experience strange rejection to the message of Jesus. Have you ever seen when someone just rejects the gospel so viscerally that you say, this has, there has to be something deep, deeper to this than just that they didn't like what I said. There's an almost violent reaction to the gospel. Well, we shouldn't be surprised by that when we hear from Jesus that evangelism, missions, is part of spiritual warfare. Lambs amongst wolves. We are certainly barefoot travelers. As we go, of course, we have our shoes, we have sandals for our feet, but like these barefoot travelers, we have nothing in our hands but the simple message of the gospel. Nothing, nothing clever to take with us. We don't have you know, impressive visual displays up here, uh, capturing your attention, bringing you in. Just, just the simple message of a crucified Messiah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So we are barefoot travelers as well, brother. And no no shoes even on our feet. But we are also, and finally, rejected ambassadors as we go, like like these ambassadors of Jesus, who bring good news of peace, but who who more than that are are, are found saying, Whoa, you did not believe the message. But, look at this. Sent out as these barefoot travelers, sent out as lambs amongst wolves, look at these 72. They returned. And what is their report in verse 17? The 72 returned with joy. Joy. They went out as lambs amongst wolves. And so we'd expect them to come back tattered and limping, but instead they come back just filled with joy. I want to look very quickly at these three sources for their joy, which we find in the missions report. So here's the debriefing. First, they have joy in their success in the missions field. Joy in their success. Verse 16, they come rushing up to Jesus. Jesus, even the demons are subject to us in your name. That's very interesting because in his instructions, Jesus didn't say anything about casting out demons. They've gone even beyond what they expected to accomplish. And then look at what Jesus says in verse 18. I saw Satan, the prince of darkness, I saw him fall like lightning from heaven. That is incredible to hear, isn't it? The very prince in the power of darkness, Jesus catches this, gl- this vision right in the middle of their mission. He's like a thunderbolt right to his heart. Maybe this is a picture even of, of what Jesus is about to accomplish on the cross. And he's saying the kingdom of God is, is making its progress into the world. What an encouragement as we go into 
this world, isn't it? As we share the gospel message, invite people into our homes, when you invite non-Christians into your home, share a meal with them, tell them about how important Jesus is to you, it's like a cannonball smashes into the ranks of a kingdom of darkness gathering. When you give simple testimony to the work of Jesus in your heart, Jesus says, it's like a glimpse of Satan being dethroned. Just as we know he will in that ultimate sense when the kingdom of God comes in its greatest fullness. So this is an encouragement, joy in in their success, but also I want us to see that Jesus points them to an even greater joy. Verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is the greater joy, the joy that they could have, that we can have today in our salvation. That same gospel that you share with the world has already enrolled your name in heaven so that you are part of that great harvest of souls. That is a blessed hope. Could there be any joy greater than that to have your name written in the rolls of heaven, to be brought in by the Lord of the harvest? Yes, because Jesus points us to the greatest source of joy possible. Joy in the Father's sovereign work. Verse 21. In that same hour, Jesus rejoiced. There's the joy. What are you rejoicing? In the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. For such was your will. When we go into the harvest, we have a joyful confidence. The confidence that this harvesting is not in our own power. It is not in our words of persuasion, our ability to, uh, to, to, uh, to convince as many as we can of the kingdom. No, it is our confidence rests in the Lord of the harvest himself. Because look at what Jesus goes on to say. Verse 22. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. This is the sovereign work of God in salvation that we can have confidence, even joy in, that he is, he is saving those whom he chooses to save. He is revealing himself to those whom he chooses to reveal. And we, we don't have to sit there anxiously, hoping that when we go out, we're persuasive enough. No, we go out humbly appointed by the Lord of the harvest, knowing that he will bring in his full harvest. And so let me close with three simple encouragements from this passage. 
First, pray for the harvest. Remember what Jesus said back in verse 2? Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Isn't that what we do when we take time at the end of Sunday school, at the beginning of every month, to pray for missionaries? And isn't that what we do when we take time, I hope throughout the week, to pray for those who are laboring in the fields all over the world? We need to pray for the mission work, not only around the world, but right here. Our mission work. What an opportunity even now to pray for our next steps as we plan uh, this upcoming year. Pray that the Lord would bring labors to our corner of the harvest taking place in Dayton, Ohio. Pray that our ESL work would be a means to great harvest of souls. Not only that, Yes, we are to pray, but we are also are to go. Go. Jesus sends you out, just like these 72, called to go into the world, called to bear witness to Jesus, and to have the, this privilege of being part of the kingdom of darkness, losing its ground as the kingdom of heaven, the very kingdom of the Son of God, moves forward triumphantly. And indeed, it is a privilege. Because listen to what Jesus says in verse 24. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. As we go out, as we see people believing in Jesus, joining gospel-preaching churches, this is something that Abraham Long to see, but never saw it. This is something that Solomon, in all his wisdom and glory, just wanted a glimpse of. And now, we get to see a harvest of souls by our great Lord of the harvest. So let's pray to him now. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would be fervent in prayer to you about these things, and that we would go out, because you've called us to go. And yet, as we go, there's a mystery at work that this rests not in our own hands, but in your hands, in your powerful revelation, your sovereign work. So we pray that we would grab hold of this mystery and go forth confident in the work we do because you're going to see it from beginning to end. Lord, make us like these 72, but even greater through the resurrection power of Christ. Pray this all. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, let's stand now and sing, responding in praise with a hymn 423, Far and Near the Fields Are Teeming. And I wonder if I could ask you to play the whole thing through just once since we've never sung it before. Thank you.